Welcome to Waterbrook Church, located in Victoria, Minnesota. Glorious Disruption is about when Jesus shows up and turns everyone's world upside down. We believe this study of God's Word is about to turn many people's lives completely around. It may be even upside down because that's what happens in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus comes to people who are absolutely stunned and amazed by Him, and they are profoundly and gloriously changed forever. Let's begin by praying that this happens here at Waterbrook and beyond for our joy and amazement in Jesus. Let's worship together. Well, thank you for uh, praying for us as we were gone this last month. We had quite the adventure. Thanks for praying for our travel because that was kind of exciting at times. Um, Some of you know I uh, went to Honduras um, to see the kids and uh, got to have a couple of church services in Spanish, and that was a joy, and to be with Lauren and Diego, and I met my grandson, uh, we call him Rowie, for the first time, so that was a joy for me to do that. Simultaneous, we met up in Florida. Uh, Marianne was there for a few days, and then she literally circumnavigated the globe. So she flew from uh, Florida to L.A., L.A. to Japan, Japan to Jakarta, and then uh, she's uh, working with Bible League, uh, doing English language and the Bible teaching. So she, they flew her to all these little Indonesian islands. And uh, praise God for that. that you, so you have to ask her about that. The, the flight itself was an adventure, and we got through all of that. Um, but what a, what a marvelous thing to go in. She was in the slums of Jakarta. They flew her up into some poor areas of Bali. She was on another island. She ended up in Bangkok. Uh, to see the work that her sister's doing there. And then she flew to Korea and back to Florida, and we had a few days to rest before we came back. So uh, praise God for um, that privilege. And that's what it really feels like for us, uh, a privilege. But in the middle of all of that, it's a marvelous thing for us to realize where God is at work and what God is doing. And know that knowing that he's working here in our church family and knowing that God is calling us to be Uh, uh, a people who reflect the gospel in how we live and love one another. This is an interesting text of scripture. You saw how long the section was, and I'm holding it together by two things. I think it's meant to be held together by the story of the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection, and um, Jesus speaking about widows. Those things come together in this passage of Scripture. And I want to even acknowledge right before we study the Word this morning that several of you women are widows. And uh, I uh, have experienced that myself as a widower when I was 40 years old. And this uh, text by the Sadducees, this callous text, where they are sparring with Jesus about an Old Testament uh, law regarding widows. Um, you can just feel in this text of Scripture Jesus' defensiveness to rise, rising up. And I want to say to you, widows, just listen to Jesus. Uh, he sees you. Uh, he loves you. He has a purpose for your life. And uh, you, in this passage of Scripture, are meant to hope in Jesus. Uh, the hero of the story is Jesus. But there is a subtext hero when we get to chapter 21 of this widow just pouring her life out, giving everything she has for the kingdom of God. And that's what the gospel does. That's what the resurrection does. It frees you 
from everything that this life robs of us and even what the enemy wants us to lose. He, he wants us to be reminded Jesus sees us and he has us and he's come for us and he will not let you go. And uh, so I, I want to pause right before going, not just for widows, but for all of us. How many of you came in this morning feeling like Jesus doesn't see you? Or feeling like no one knows what's really going on in your life? And I want you just to, to pray that this morning because this text argues against that. An argument against callous religious leadership that argues and debates about things while the while people are bleeding right in front of you, people are broken right in front of you, and Jesus came for the broken. He saw, and he did what was necessary. So would you pray with me just briefly? I'm going to invite you to quietly pray. And as you pray, you say, Jesus, do you see me today? I mean, the real me, where I am in life, how this story didn't turn out the way I expected. Jesus, do you care? Jesus, help me. Oh, God, this Savior revealed to us in this text, this mighty King, zealous for His people, jealous for His bride, Determined to go to the cross and die. That he might save us. That he might triumph and that he might establish a new family and a new kingdom and a new temple for himself. A new Israel. Oh, Father, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, take this word today and love your people. Lift your people. Set us free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the fall of 2015, pictures began to flash across the world of a three-year-old Kurdish boy. I don't know if you remember the picture. But as the ISIS and the Syrian battles were going on and refugees were fleeing out of the Middle East trying to get to Greece. There was an awful tragedy and, and suddenly across Twitter there were pictures flashing of a three-year-old little boy named Alan Curdy who had drowned in a little red shirt and little red shorts and he was floating in to the sea near a Turkish um, tourist area and as people captured just the cruelty the label that is often put upon war and those who are the nobodies the the insignificant ones of of these events are often called collateral damage collateral damage is a way that we justify what we do in war when in reality the consequence has real and lasting effects on the most weak and the most vulnerable. And suddenly, flashing across the world uh, on Twitter, it had uh, this 
uh, kind of hashtag going humanity washed ashore. Suddenly this little three-year-old boy and his five-year-old brother died as well. This collateral damage became a picture of what humanity was capable of doing against one another. Awful picture, but suddenly awaking people's senses to the cruelty of war. And I think when we read this text of Scripture, we see a group of Sadducees. They're all coming at Jesus. But what makes this text powerful is Jesus standing up against this, this argument about the resurrection. You see, the, what's happened in this text, you've heard it, I'm thankful for the guys who've been preaching over the last few weeks, is that there's a continual bombardment now against Jesus as he gets to Jerusalem to try to undermine him, to pose questions. It says earlier, like in the text last week that Dr. Shank was preaching on, they're coming and saying, who should we serve, Caesar or God? Who should we give our taxes? Trying to divide people. But Jesus comes in and, and confronts this because what's really going on is not some theological debate that needs to be resolved. Jesus isn't interested in theological debate. Jesus has come to save the widow, the weak, the broken, and the lost. He's opposed to it. And so a group of cynical Sadducees come and they say to Jesus this parable so that they might ask him a question about what, you know, that they might divide him because the Sadducees, they're a group of a sect of the religious establishment. Some say they were part of the priestly class. They were at least, we know those, it says in the text, Luke says they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in, in, in the resurrection, and they, they also only believed uh, the first five books, the Pentateuch. They only believed the first five books of the Bible, and so they're arguing there's nothing of the resurrection in that text of Scripture. But while they're arguing it, Jesus comes back at them, not because he wants to argue. Jesus is not interested in defending the resurrection against these men, per se. He's not interested in a theological debate. He realizes the resurrection, this truth of his coming, is absolutely essential in liberating people and setting the captives free, and ministering grace and mercy to the, to the weak. You know, in other passages it says, he saw the people and they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And so I want you to look at this text of Scripture for a couple of reasons. Because you know what, there are a lot of us, a lot of people who feel like collateral damage in the church. I mean, you've been in churches, I... I remember being in a congregational meeting where this debate was going on about church structure and how it ought to be. I can remember this years ago, and I remember seeing in the meeting a dear widow in my church weeping. And you sit there in your heart and say, is theological or, or, or ecclesiological church structure the big issue right now? Be careful, because there are people who just need Jesus, just need the body, just need the truth, need the, need the reality of the resurrection manifested in their lives so that they might set free. And so on one hand, you and I need to hear this text of Scripture because it's pretty easy in our culture to get into theological debates and miss why we're called. When we stand before the Lord one day, Jesus says this clearly in the text. It won't be how many theological arguments we've won. 
It will be whether or not we've lived out the power of the gospel in real relationships with broken and needy people. And so on one hand, it's a warning text. On another hand, it's a, it's a comforting text because what we need to understand is that Jesus is replacing this callous, cynical, uncompassionate leadership with his shepherding, with his kingdom. And it's a kingdom like, unlike any other kingdom. Jesus is the compassionate king who has come to deliver the widow and the orphan and all those who are languishing in the valley of the shadow of death. He hasn't come to win an argument. He's come to win the lost. He's come to rescue the weak and the weary. And I hope you hear that today. That's my heart today is no matter what you're going through and what you're experiencing right now, know this. Jesus is telling you I'm here for you and to make all things new. So here's, here's what I want to do. Uh, this is an uncomfortable text for me, to be quite honest, this first part. This, this Sadducees text is not something that doesn't go on in real life conversations. Those of you who are widows and widowers know what this is like. So you have these callous Sadducees who are ridiculing the concept of the resurrection by using the law. Talk about the misuse of the word of God. To make a point, to advance their cause, to elevate their position, they are fighting, they are threatened by this movement of Jesus. And they're fighting to hold on to it. And they are fighting a losing battle because the more they fight, the more they determine that Jesus wins the victory. They meant it for evil, right? God meant it for good as they're determined to do this. And so in, in this passage of Scripture, it says, there came to him, verse 27, some Sadducees, those who deny that there's a resurrection, and they ask him a question. And when I hear this text of Scripture, I really feel like there's almost a sneer in it. Um, one of the commentators um, was describing what they were saying as... Um, as the, they, they were they were arguing with Jesus about the lunacy of the resurrection. They think, how can you even, this is ridiculous. Let's tell you a scenario from the law. It seems so absurd to actually believe in the resurrection. So they said, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise his offspring for his brother. So here's a, let's give, us, give you a theory. Now there were seven brothers that first took a wife, died without children. Second, the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died afterward the woman also died in the resurrection therefore whose wife will the woman be for the seven had her as his wife now I'll tell you that's um, callous for one for multiple reasons because when you're a widow or a widower and you remarry like I have to this delightful woman and somebody comes along and says so who are you going to be married to when you get to heaven who are you going to hang out with when you're in heaven? That, 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 that's not a theo, theological debate. That's a painful heart issue. Touching probably where it hurts the most. And I want you to realize that in this context, right here, in this passage of Scripture, there are widows present. And you'll see, it because in the, in the flow of the argument, Jesus addresses widows immediately. And Jesus 
points out as the hero of the story a widow. And so you've got this callous <laughs> legalism. And, and, and so that, there is a law. I want you to see this law. I'll have it put up for you from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 5 to 6, where under the Mosaic law, God made provision because of death. Ever since Adam and Eve, we've lived under death. And because of death, there's consequences for families. And these are heartbreaking consequences. Especially if you're a woman in an Eastern culture. The vulnerabilities here. And so, this is the law. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead men shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the brother so that his name shall not be blotted out of Israel. That was under the Mosaic law. So if a woman's husband died and she didn't have an, they didn't have an heir, her, his brother was to come and provide an heir for them. And there were two goals in that, at least. The first goal in this passage, it was to protect or preserve the family line of the man. It was to provide a posterity, an inher- a, a, a heritage for the man. And then secondly, it was to preserve the name of the man, the honor of the man. Both of those two things were there. But I want to add something else to this. It wasn't simply providing for the line and the lineage of the man, the name of the man and the, and the, the, the family line, the sonship of the man, the inheritance for the man, but it was also designed to protect the woman in the culture. Uh, I don't have it here, but later on in Deuteronomy, uh, that, this particular chapter, there's a... A teaching on the law where it says if the brother will not provide in this way for his brother's family after he dies if he comes he is to take his sandal off and he is from that point on being called the sandalless man which in that culture is an insult they actually were to take his sand, he was to take his sandal off and they were to spit on him. Because not only was this a dishonor to his brother, but this is, as you see in the line of teaching in the scripture and in here, this was a lack of protection in that culture for the woman. Her line, her protection, her family, her inheritance was robbing her of all of that. That was absolute cruelty and dishonor. And so this is the text that they come up. They're not thinking about the widow. They're, they're in, a, in a religious philosophical cage match with the, between them and the Pharisees and the scribes. And they're trying to divide and conquer against Jesus, just like the text last week. And so they're coming up and asking this callous thing. And my dear friends, I just want you and I to stop and say this. First of all, be very careful. Because if you're in a philosophical or a theological debate in order to win a point and to establish your position you need to understand that whatever God has decreed and designed is not so that you can win and be right and exalt yourself and get power and position the only thing is that the gospel would advance and those who are broken and weary and needed might be rescued And we have to be very cognizant, very cognizant on Sunday mornings in worship and any gatherings where the church, small groups, 
on Wednesday nights that in the midst of us are broken and bleeding people that this king came to save. Came to rescue. Came to deliver. There is a warning here in this text. I mean, I go on Twitter and watch what Christians do on Twitter and I think I can't come on here anymore. You just got to stop looking. We're so right. We're so correct. We're so arrogant. And we're, we're not doing what we've been called to do. On the other side, widows. Aren't you glad Jesus is fighting for you? You've got this one in your corner. So let me point to Jesus because they come and pose this question and here what I want you to see in this text of Scripture is that we have a compassionate Savior who's protecting both the truth and the widow in this text. Um, he comes and he, he argues for the resurrection, but it's, it's interesting um, as Jesus makes his points about the resurrection, he doesn't actually simply go through and teach about the resurrection in order to win the argument against them. He's actually holding it up against the, the Sadducees and he, he's bringing practical application in order to confront them with what their argument and what their position and what they're holding on to power is doing to those around them. And he says, you're going to be held accountable for this. And so here's the first thing that Jesus does. He doesn't just try to win the argument. He, he's shepherding the widow and confronting the Sadducee. The first thing is the resurrection is in fact a biblical fact, Jesus is saying, but it's also a better reality. He's confronting them. They're coming and saying, this is a ridiculous thing. What if this guy's uh, this, this woman's husband dies and then another husband dies and you believe in the resurrection. Are you telling me on that day that all these guys are going to be lined up in heaven and they're going to be married to the same woman? Whose wife will she be? And Jesus stops and says, you don't understand. This is not going from this world to another world just like this world. This is going from this world to a far more glorious world. A world of another nature. And so in verse 34 and 36, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Do you understand what he's saying here? There's, there's, there's two goals in their law, right? One to protect the line, one to protect the name of the man. And Jesus says, you don't have to do that when there's a resurrection because nobody dies anymore. You live forever. So the, the idea of marriage in order to propagate a line doesn't have to happen anymore because now you'll live forever. Nobody dies in Jesus Christ. Well, we'll live and so there's no need for the propagation of the line. Secondly, he says the propagation of the honor of the family name. You don't have to propagate the honor of the family name because you get a new name. You're not the son of so-and-so, and you're not the son of so-and-so, when, you, when you're raised from the dead and you see Jesus and you've been adopted through Christ's blood and by his resurrection, you are a son of God. Isn't that good news? You have a better name. So Tom Schreiner gives us this 
Reminder, he says, we can fall into the trap of thinking the new creation will be joyful only if it's like life on earth. Some people become sad because they want their dogs to be in the new creation or want to be, remain married to a spouse, or want their children to remain their children. But we must remember that every good blessing on earth will be ours in the future, but in new and dramatically different ways. We will lack nothing we enjoy in this life, but we will find that those things will return to us in a deeper and richer way. The new creation will be a world of love. Get this. The new creation will be a world of love that far exceeds the love and joy we have now. So that's the first response Jesus has. They're going, this is absurd. Do you understand how hard that'll be on that day? You guys, if that's actually true, and Jesus turns and says, it won't be hard, it'll be better. It'll be beautiful. It'll be far more profound. You think there's love here. Wait till you're in a world where there's no sin and no death and no brokenness, no family alienation ever, no separation. Imagine that, and there's love and life, and your name is child of God. I'll tell you, if you see your spouse in heaven and you're a child of God, you'll be weeping about the same thing, that we belong to the King who saved us. Tell you it was good to see Marianne arrive in uh, Fort Walton Beach. I was praying as the husband. She was flying crazy flight, arriving in Jakarta at midnight. You know, making a one-hour transition in Seoul, Korea. I can't get her all the time. I'm tracking as much as I can when she get off the plane. But then I saw her radiant face. She had flown. I don't know, what was that last flight? 13 hours or something. Some long flight. And she was totally in an opposite time zone. And she got off the plane and her face was like she had slept a week. Because she had seen the hand of God at work in the lives of the poor. I'll tell you, that's just a little picture of what her face will look like in glory. I won't be thinking about me. And I won't be thinking about loss. I'll be thinking about the same thing she's thinking about. How great is our God? How good is our King? What a compassionate Savior. Isn't that good news? That's where Jesus, and Jesus then says to them, and if you want to argue biblical, you need to understand that there is biblical truth in the Pentateuch. He said, I'll take you to one of the holiest moments in the Pentateuch when God approaches, or Moses approaches God at the burning bush. And that's where God calls Moses and sets him out. And so listen to what uh, it says. This is ex- Jesus, Jesus in this text of Scripture down says um, in verse 37, but the dead are raised. Even Moses showed in the passage of the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 3 to 6, Moses said, I will turn aside to see. So here's the burning bush. Jesus says, it's that scene which proves the resurrection. He says, Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great light, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then God said to him, do not come near for the place that you are standing is holy ground. And he said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. He didn't say, I was Abraham. He said, I am who I am, right? 
That's one of the most powerful parts of that text. Repeatedly he says this. I am who I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. And when he says those statements to Moses, he is talking about his commitment to, the, to Abraham when he covenanted to Abraham. And he said, I will give you as many descendants are the, the sand on the seashore. And in uh, part of our time away, we were on the shore of Destin. Those of you who've been down to, and uh, we counted all the sands. <laughs> we didn't even count a shovelful, right? God had made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob that he would have a people for himself. And Abraham, by faith, believed it, believed that promise. And he said, I am Abraham's God. That covenant is standing to this day. I am the God of Jacob. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God. And Jesus said, that's not a God. He is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. Aren't you glad for that? Jesus, you can argue with the scripture all you want. He's the God of the living. Edward Schweitzer says, God does not elect anybody in order to throw him into a trash can. As God's presence with me does not cease when I am sleeping or dreaming or unresponsive in a fever or unconscious, it will not cease when death overcomes me. If God did not forsake Israel even when it turned from him, how should he leave the individual in death? Isn't that a great comfort? My dear friends, our God is the God of the living. He has promised to raise the dead, and he will raise the dead just as he said. Secondly, not only is that resurrection a beautiful reality and a new reality and a a biblical truth, but it marks a monumental shift. Jesus takes it the next step with these guys. So he's going, Jesus is going to confront them with their arrogance and their callousness that has consequences. This resurrection that he's talking about, that's, that's being taught, is a, a resurrection that comes by the resurrection of the new David, of Jesus himself. Because it's in Jesus that we will rise from the dead. And he, so he asks them a question. Because look, look what happens after Jesus um, tells them that God is, you know, in the Mosaic Law, the God of the living and not just the God of the dead. In verse 39 it says, Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any questions. So he silenced the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees are going, yeah. Gave it to those guys because they're in argumentative competition with one another going, yes. And Jesus turns and says, if you think this vindicates you, I need to ask you a question. Who is David's son? He's been doing this in this text all the way along. There's a new temple coming. There's a greater Solomon. Last week, when he, he had the, had the uh, two coins, and there are the coins, and they asked, you know, should we give this to Caesar, or should we give this to God? Who do we owe our taxes to? And he took the coin and said, who's on this? That's a very Solomon moment, just like the two prostitutes that come with the child, and he says, well, let's cut them in half. That's a Solomon moment where suddenly they're shut up by Jesus. Suddenly they're amazed at Jesus' wisdom. Well, in this passage of Scripture, Jesus comes back at them, and it says in verse 20, or chapter Luke 20, 41, he said to them, how can they say that Christ is David's son? 
For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What's Jesus doing here? He, he's pointing out to them that the resurrection is not a cold, callous, biblical doctrine. It's biblical truth. But he's saying it is a divine declaration. That if you look back, he quotes one of the most quoted psalms in the, in the Old Testament, Psalm 110, where David says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool to your feet. And he says, you guys call the son of David, the new Solomon, the Messiah. You call the, the Messiah the son of David. Let me ask you a question. Why does David call him Lord? And why does he say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? What, what's Jesus doing here? He's saying, you need to understand this that David's son is the Lord that David would bow to. And David's son is the Lord who will reign for all eternity because he's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. The resurrection is not just a doctrine. It's a divine declaration. Jesus is Lord. When Jesus was raised from the dead, Sin was defeated and eternity was settled. He's Lord. He's King. Paul argued that. In, in his letter to the Romans, the letter is introduced with this statement. Listen to Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand in the, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was a descendant of David from, uh, according to the flesh and was declared what? The Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his what? Resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord. He's flipping the cards on him and saying, what are you going to do with Psalm 110? Obviously David's son, the Messiah, is David's Lord. And one day when he is made Lord... By the power of the resurrection, right? God will say, sit down, and I will make all my, your enemies a footstool to your feet. He's turning to the scribes who believe in the resurrection, and he said, it is not belief in the resurrection that saves you. It's belief, belief in the resurrected one that saves you. You must believe in David's son, the, re, the reigning one, because God has said, sit at my right hand. Listen to Paul when he talks about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, which is often preached at Easter. For as, as in Adam all die, so in Christ what? Shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who what? Belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, and destroying every rule and every authority and every power. Do you hear this? The Father will and the Son are going to destroy everything. All of Christ's enemies will be destroyed. Every rule, every authority, every power. He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is? Praise God. So Colton Crane, as you're grieving today, God sees you. And understand that death will not last. And I say that just as softly as I can. And those of you widows, death doesn't have the last word. 
every enemy will be made a footstool for his feet. All the powers, Satan will be made a footstool for his feet. Sin will be done with once and for all. Sickness and the curse. Everything that makes you feel like you're an outcast, alienated, forgotten, unseen. Whatever it was that made you feel like you were a thousand miles from God today. Let me hear this. All of his enemies will be destroyed. And finally death. And we'll be done with all of that forevermore. Is that not good news? But that promise, Jesus says to the scribes, is not for those who believe in the resurrection, but those who belong to Christ. The resurrected ones. I have talked to many, most of the time when I do funerals or interact with people who are at funerals, they believe in the resurrection. They believe in life after death. But the scribes are being told by Jesus, it's not belief in the resurrection. You're in no better place than the Sadducees unless you know David's son who is the Lord of the resurrection. And so do you hear me today? I'm going to make this appeal. So you, you might be here today and you believe there's life after death. And there is life after death. And you might think life after death is better than life here. And life after death is better than here. But I need to tell you this. It is not believing in the resurrection. It's believing in the crucified one who rose from the dead, belonging to him that allows you to share in that resurrected hope. And I plead with you today, today believe in Jesus Christ. Today, acknowledge that God put him in that place and declared him as Lord. He is Lord over sin, Lord over the, uh, of the curse, Lord over the fall, Lord over death. He has conquered it, and he is Lord of life. And if you belong to him, you will live forevermore. Thirdly, Jesus takes it another launch, and he says the resurrection is also not only this glorious reality, it's a sobering reality. Because when the final resurrection takes place, you're going to give an account for what you did to these widows. So if you just think belief in the resurrection makes you superior, you need to understand that if you believe in the resurrection and then you harass the widows and don't care for the weak, you'll get a stricter judgment. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, listen to that, you see that? In the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the place of honors who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive what? Greater condemnation. They could be as theologically astute and powerful and influential, but the resurrection is actually going to lead to a greater day of reckoning. You don't win the argument by saying there's a resurrection. You win by trusting in the Savior and loving and serving and following Him. Mary Ann, you know, you'll, you'll need to hear some of the stories of her trip being in middle of Jakarta in the slums and seeing, uh, I might get the wrong island here so you can just correct it later, but seeing a, a group of young men from Papua New Guinea living on floor mats and being trained in the gospel and their housing is being paid for by a widower, a man whose wife died a year ago and out of his salary he's paying for these young men. Nobody knows. Nobody sees. She didn't know him until she went there. 
And she came back and said, wow, Jesus sees. And Jesus sees those who take advantage of the poor and the widow and the weak and hold up to their egotistical and actually take advantage of them to hold on to power and to build their castles and, and hold on to their positions. He sees that and he will deal with that on behalf of the widow. Widows, he's got your back. And he will reward those who trust and serve and sacrifice. So the resurrection is also a humbling truth. And widows need to know that Christ's coming. I, I won't read it now, but Psalm 68 is a great text. I think I had it on the slide. And I said Psalm 65, but it's 68. I just That's a typo. Um, but in Psalm 68, there's this picture of God coming as a mighty defender of his people. And he's marching in to deliver his people. And the call of the people is to rejoice. But I, I do want to read the last part of it in verse 5, where it, it ends by saying, Exalt before him, father of the fatherless and protector of what? Widows is God in his holy habitation. There is a house there. God's house. In God's house. My dear friends, we're God's house. God dwells in us. But in God's presence, God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of the widow. Don't you love that? He settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious will dwell in a parched land. They will be dealt with. Now, I was going to stop there, but I had to read the next four verses because we go immediately to a widow. And I don't think it's accidental for Luke. We immediately go to this widow. You know the story, the widow of the two mites? I, I actually had two Roman mites in my office, widow's mites. Um, two, two little pathetic little coins that this woman comes. And Jesus says, this is what Luke records, Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box and he saw a poor widow in two small copper coins and he said, truly I tell you, the poor widow has put more in than all of them for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty put in all that she had. Isn't that glorious? As you look at that text or scripture, what do you Intent, what does Jesus want you to see? He wants you to see the freedom of the resurrection. When you actually understand the resurrection, this woman, even though the, the priesthood is corrupt, even though the Sadducees are callous, even though nobody recognizes her, she knows that God sees her. And she is free because even though she has nothing, she has life. And all of these people are giving out of their riches and this woman's coming up and she's giving out of her poverty. Why? Because she knows that the, resurrect, the king, the Lord, the God that she trusts in will take care of her day after day after day. All the way through Luke's gospel, he keeps bringing widows up. The widow of Zarephath didn't have anything and Elisha goes to her and oil is provided for her. You see the, Jesus coming to the, the widow at Nain and her Son has died, and what does he do? He raises him from the dead. And I just want you to see in this text of Scripture that the resurrection gives freedom to those of you who are broken and weak because he's got you. And it frees you from having to count on everybody else to be your savior. And it frees you from, from counting on yourself to have to save yourself. And to, to writing a, a narrative of tragedy, this doesn't end in tragedy. It, rend, it, it, it ends in resurrection hope. In new life, 
You belong. You have a name. You have someone who's got your back. Marianne's mom had a favorite verse in the Scriptures from Isaiah 54. And she was one of the sweetest ladies who was a widow for most of the end of her life. And this was the text, Isaiah 54, 5 and 6. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he has caused. The Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. God comes along and says, you'll be my wife. Isn't that what he does for all of us in our brokenness? We're the bride of Christ. Comes to us and owns us and rescues us. So the resurrection means freedom. We don't have to worry about everyone else, what everyone else thinks, what everyone recognizes. We have a God who raises the dead and it gives us favor. I just want you to see one thing. This is what stood out. Look at verse two. He saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. What did Jesus see? The rich, the wealthy, the prosperous. He saw the widow bringing an inconsequential amount, it seemed. But everything you have. This chapter began with Sadducees arguing in front of widows about the resurrection without concern for their well-being, without concern of the impact of the weight of the words. How alienated, how injurious. They're, they're having their cage fight with one another and with Jesus about whether or not the resurrection. They don't see the widow the whole time Jesus sees the widow. The whole time. Oh, may God help us. Waterbrook, if we're going to be on mission, we can be as theologically accurate, precise, and correct as we want to be. But if we don't see the broken, the, 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 the widowed, the downcast, and they walk in the doors, then our doctrine is not doing what our doctrine is meant to do. To give hope, to promise life, to raise up those who are downcast. And also... It frees us, right? Just frees us. We don't have to worry about tomorrow. We don't have to engage in the, in the worries of the culture. Our culture is highly anxious. What's the economy going to do? What is Russia and, and uh, the Ukraine going to do? What's going to happen in, in China? What's gonna, we, we can just constantly become anxious about the future of the world. Let me tell you what the future of the world is. Christ Risen and reigning for all eternity, raising all who trusted in him and making all things new. That's your name. You are a child of God. That's your heritage. You are part of his household. That is your destiny. That's the good news of the gospel. My dear friends, that's your Savior. He's a glorious king. Let's pray together and give thanks. Oh, good God, thank you. Thank you that you see the broken. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you hear the crying of those who are in need. Even today, dear God, as people come in and out of these services of worship, you see. And thank you, dear God, that you are greater than life and death because you are the Lord of life, the Lord of the resurrection. Thank you that you seated your Son at the right hand and gave him all authority over all things. And then you, you said to him, sit at, your, at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed will be death. So comfort, dear God, those who are grieving today. 
and silence those of us who are just debating doctrine. Help us to be more like our Father. Help us to love like the Savior. Make us more like Jesus. And Jesus, be glorified through the church, we pray. God's people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.